This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. It's such an overwhelming wave of fucking sadness because you're like, that's still my father. Like, my father just did the ultimate, most horrific thing in the world to me. And I feel bad about it. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fianick. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And it's another morning recording. And Billy, the energy coming over from his neck of the woods is at a negative 15, I think. Well, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. This is the earliest we've ever recorded. No, it's not. We recorded earlier last time. It was like 8. No. There's no chance in hell we ever recorded at 8. Yes, there was. Yes, there was. (laughs) As Alexis yawns, by the way. I've been up since (laughs) 6 for the second time. This is not early for me. It shouldn't be early for anybody, Billy. Like anybody listening in their office jobs that they've been at their desk for like an hour. Yeah, you're offending them. You're offending them. I'm offending them with my late night privilege, right? Yep. Absolutely. Billy, what day is it to actually, sorry, before we jump into the day, this is part three of Noreen Boyle. If you haven't listened to part one or two, you're going to be so confused. So go back and listen, binge them all. And then you can jump right into this episode. That's right. Well, today is September 8th and it is National Ampersand Day. Nothing like a good ampersand. I love using an ampersand. I don't know if I can actually write one though. Yeah. I do them backwards. Oh, Dyslexia, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's also um, Pardon Day. Ooh, to get pardons. It's Star Trek Day. All the Trekkies out there. Happy yes. All the Trekkies will love that one. And then a question for Alexis. It, there's mm. no cooked fruit, but it is National Date Nut Bread Day. Ew. Ooh. Ooh, Alexis's face tells this. If Yes. Date if only nut. we were on video because the face of the revulsion fruit breads are also not my jam oh. a gourd I'll, I'll fuck with a pumpkin bread uh pumpkin okay. spice lattes are out now so i'll fuck with a pumpkin bread i'm not fucking with a fruit or nut bread thank you i don't like much. nuts in my baked goods it's no. not i don't feel like they belong there no, no it's why fruit cakes receiving fruit cakes was considered an insult <laughs> among americans <laughs> Very, very rude. All right. Well, I think that that's all the good days. It's not a great day. Yeah. 
Um, all right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. December 30th of 1989, 11-year-old Collier Landry Boyle heard violent noises in the middle of the night coming from his parents' bedroom. The next morning, his mother, Noreen Schmidt Boyle, who was in the midst of a contentious divorce from his father, Dr. John Boyle Jr., who went by Jack, was nowhere to be found. Collier's mother had warned her son that if anything ever happened to her, that her husband was the one to blame. Believing her prophetic words, Collier worked with Detective David Messmore of the Mansfield Police Department and helped to mine and gather information about his father. It took weeks for police to discover Noreen's body, wrapped in a tarp with a plastic bag over her head beneath the basement of a home Jack Boyle had recently purchased in Erie, Pennsylvania. Jack's intention was to start a new life in this house along with his pregnant mistress. This way, Jack could always be sure that Noreen wouldn't be found. But clearly, That's not what happened. And while the discovery of Noreen's body marked the end of one part of this case, it marked the beginning of an especially traumatic series of events for Collier, who would be thrust into the spotlight as the prime witness in the case against his father. Try to put yourself in Collier's shoes. Imagine the stress, the sorrow, the fear. Really, all of your worst fears have been realized. But despite receiving the traumatic news that his mother's body had been found in the basement of his father's new home... There was no time for Collier to grieve. He was immediately called to testify before a grand jury who would be securing the indictment against Jack Boyle. I testified before the grand jury a few days later. They find enough from my testimony about what happened with my father to indict my father for premeditated murder. He's indicted. He's in county jail. pleaded not guilty to the charges, which meant that there would be a trial. And at this point, with Collier's mother being murdered, his father in jail, and he himself as the linchpin in the case, Collier found himself alone. And even though he was just an 11-year-old going on 12, the rest of Jack Boyle's family saw Collier's cooperations with authorities as betrayal. And that is disgusting. My whole family doesn't want anything to do with me, both sides. I'm in foster care, basically living this out alone. Collier and his sister were put into the foster care system as prosecutors prepared for the murder trial. And it's at this point they approach Collier about his role in the trial and what it would entail. The prosecutor says to me, they, they say, you know, we have a really strong case. Would you testify? And I'm like, well, I'm, there's no way I'm not going to testify against my father, despite understanding what the consequences were. What Collier means when he refers to, quote, understanding what the consequences were, he means that he knew his family would continue to distance themselves from him. But beyond that, he would literally need to face his father in court, which is a terrifying prospect. Meanwhile, Jack Boyle, who was maintaining his innocence, was in jail, and his bail was set at $5 million. The judge froze his assets at the request of an attorney that was hired to protect the interests of Collier and his sister Elizabeth. So needless to say... He would stay behind bars for the months leading up to the trial. As the trial approached, it became clear that this would be a media spectacle in the small town of Mansfield. 
which was ramped up even more by the fact that the judge had issued a gag order, prohibiting police, court employees, and attorneys on both sides from discussing the case publicly. But the case had already garnered so much attention that it was seemingly impossible to find jurors who didn't know anything about it. They also expected the trial to be quite long, which narrowed the pool of jurors even further. But ultimately, 12 jurors were selected along with several alternates. And for months, Collier had been in foster care, and he was trying to mentally and emotionally prepare for the trial that was fast approaching. So for, you know, five months, I'm in this foster care situation. I don't know which way is up. And the trial was about a month long, and it was a absolute fiasco. It was the biggest news in the tri-state area. You know, satellite trucks outside the courthouse every day. And I was trying to, I was kept away from that because I was like the key witness in the case. But it was, it was like a fiasco. The trial began on the morning of June 4th, 1990. The courtroom was packed, and a live video feed was set up in the lobby outside of the courtroom, where an overflow crowd sat and watched and listened. In fact, whenever the court was in session, the town of Mansfield essentially shut down and became a ghost town. Small businesses would close because everyone was at home and watching the coverage of the trial live. The first member of Boyle's defense team was an attorney named Charles Robinson. Boyle's mother also retained a high-profile attorney named Robert Whitney, who was known to be one of the most prominent defense attorneys in North Central Ohio. So picture this as the dream team on a smaller, more rural scale. The state's case was being led by Prosecutor James Mayer Jr. and Chief Assistant Prosecutor Jerry Alt. And the prosecution's theory was pretty straightforward. They stated that evidence would prove that Dr. Boyle had gotten his mistress, Sherry Campbell, pregnant before Noreen even filed for divorce. And remember, Sherry had actually delivered that baby only weeks after Noreen was murdered. So as the relationship between Noreen and Jack continued to deteriorate, he began plotting his wife's murder and carried it out by striking Noreen in the head before suffocating her, while his children slept only a few feet away from them. Then he created a tomb in the basement of the house that he purchased with his mistress in Erie, Pennsylvania, before wrapping Noreen in a tarp and burying her there. The state intended to prove their theory by presenting a parade of witnesses and some shocking evidence that would be brought into the courtroom. To top it all off, the prosecution's star witness was none other than the son of the victim and the accused, Collier, who by this point was 12 years old. The defense had but one objective, prove reasonable doubt, to show what Jack Boyle had claimed since his arrest, that he had nothing to do with the murder of his wife, Noreen. It was someone else who had committed this brutal act. The prosecution pieced together their narrative, and while it was unclear how long Jack Boyle was thinking about murdering his wife, law enforcement could prove that there was a pretty massive aspect of premeditation. His motive. He wanted to start a new life with his pregnant mistress, and he didn't want to share the wealth and assets he'd accrued with Noreen following a divorce. He wanted to be rid of her. The prosecution started with the house that Boyle bought with his pregnant girlfriend, Sherry. The pair had been looking for houses in the Erie area months before Noreen's murder. And on November 2nd, an Erie real estate agent had received a call from a woman who identified herself as Sherry Boyle. So this is clearly the mistress, Sherry Campbell, pretending to be married to Jack, which she obviously is not. Jack was still married to Noreen, who was very much still alive and very much in the picture. 
So nine days after this initial call, Jack and Sherry met with a real estate agent and were shown eight houses. And during the meeting, Jack had introduced Sherry as his wife. Then Sherry and Jack zeroed in on one particular house they were very much interested in, which was the one they ultimately bought. And about three weeks before Noreen's death, Jack contacted the realtor and asked kind of a bizarre question. He wanted to know what was under the concrete basement floor of the house. You know, in case he decided to make some alterations or renovations. Actually, he was thinking about putting a basketball court down there. Not at all suspicious. Anyway, a month later on December 15th, Jack closed the deal on this house. His mistress Sherry's signature on this paperwork revealed something interesting. She actually signed her name, N. Sherry Boyle, an apparent effort to impersonate Noreen Boyle. So by December 27th, three days before Noreen's murder, Jack had the keys to his new house in hand. And might we add, he got the keys and the old owners out two weeks ahead of schedule because he urged them to move so he could take control of the property sooner. Okay, and maybe you're thinking, what if the timing of this house purchase is just a coincidence? Well, the prosecution provided additional evidence that Noreen's murder was planned. Jack had rented a jackhammer just two days before Noreen disappeared. And if you're wondering what he could need that jackhammer for... Let us remind you of that concrete basement floor that Jack had to break up in order to bury Noreen under them. Jack, the calculated person that he is, actually had a friend reserve this jackhammer for him 10 days before Noreen's murder. However, Jack's defense denied the jackhammer was rented for nefarious purposes. They claimed that it was rented to break up ice on the brick sidewalk of his Mansfield home because he was afraid of his wife and children slipping and falling. Okay, well... Just to paint a picture of the kind of drama that was unfolding in this courtroom in real time, the prosecutors actually wanted to demonstrate to the jurors that this power tool worked. So they had it turned on, and apparently it shook the building and it was so loud that everyone on the block heard it. So you can imagine just the spectacle that everyone was viewing. After Noreen was murdered, she was wrapped in a tarp and placed in a hole in the floor of the basement. The state presented evidence proving that Jack immediately started working to cover things up and restore the basement to its previous pristine condition. That way, only he would know the dark secret the underground level of the house would hold. The choice Boyle made about where to put Noreen demonstrates something about him. The prosecutor James Mayer provided a quote to local media outlets saying, He was such a control freak. He wanted the body right underneath his feet. That was the type of guy he was. He was diabolical. I can't imagine trying to like live your life with the body of your ex of your wife under the, I just don't understand the thought process here. Why you would want it sort of haunting, haunting you, you know, that seems like the last place you'd want to put dark secrets in your home. It's, it's one very first story I ever did was the guy that, that uh, killed his mistress and put her underneath his crawl space that was a that was his mistress, and he lived there with his wife. This is his wow. his wife and the mother of his child, and he and he decided that he was going to start this new life. And it's so strange he was starting a new life, and yet he had his old life literally right underneath him. Right, it's just like the choice to do that, where it's like you could have buried her by your old house. There's so many different places, so it's like it's kind of like the ultimate control at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. Oof. So after Boyle broke up the basement floor with his jackhammer, he hid Noreen's remains, as we know. He filled the hole with cement, and then he bought green indoor-outdoor carpeting to cover the floor over where his wife was buried. A few days later, he arranged for shelving to be built over the burial site to cover it up completely. 
And the contractor who built that shelving later noted that the windows in the basement were open that day, despite the frigid outdoor temperatures. Remember, this is January in Ohio, very cold. So knowing what we now know, there's no surprise as to why those windows and doors were open. And in another pretty harrowing and shocking moment within the courtroom, the tarp that Noreen had been wrapped and buried in was brought into court and shown to the jury. And when it was taken out of the sealed evidence bag, there was a distinctive odor which filled the room, and it horrified everyone. Okay, so some things worth noting. As the prosecution is laying out the evidence against Jack, Collier is not present. He wasn't allowed to see any of the other testimony because he himself was a testifying witness. He was also barred from seeing any coverage about the case. Well, the hardest part of the trial is, I, well, first of all, because I'm a witness, I'm not allowed to see anything. I'm not allowed to talk to anyone. I can't see any newspaper. I can't watch television. I can't do it because it's everywhere. And dealing with the fact that the hardest thing for me in all of this is that I had lost my mother, who was my world, and I had nobody there to comfort me. Nobody cared. <laughs> my family didn't care. Foster care situation was abusive. I was alone and completely isolated. And it was really dark for me, but I, I don't know. I think that what really sort of kept my sanity was the fact that I'm doing the right thing. I kept telling myself I'm doing the right thing. As, as much as it hurts being abandoned by your entire family and being isolated from the entire world, I was just like, I, I'm doing, I know what I'm doing is the right thing. As the trial days ticked by, members of the media began to note Jack Boyle's odd behaviors in the courtroom. According to one reporter who gave an interview to the Richland source, Boyle would give many media interviews. And he would even joke with reporters about being able to speak with them in exchange for Oreos. Literally. Another journalist in the same interview from the Richland source recalled an especially bizarre moment where Boyle was playing peekaboo with him while he sat in a holding room where he'd go when court was in recess. So classic narcissist. Nevertheless, the trial continued. And everyone was waiting for the day that Collier was slated to testify. And we can only imagine the immense pressure that this little boy was feeling. And if Collier was falling apart on the inside, you would never know it by looking at him from the outside. He looked perfect. A clean haircut, a navy sweater with a white stripe around the neck, and the red collar of a polo shirt sticking out. Collier walked into the courtroom where his dad was sitting at the defendant's table. I came into that courtroom and I stared my father down. He never once looked at me. So in between questions, I would be staring daggers at my father. Like, I'm going to, like, yeah, you son of a bitch. I'm going to put you in prison. Like, you murdered my mother. You're not getting away with this. I don't give a shit. <laughs> like, I was, I, was, I was pissed. I was angry. I was an angry little boy who was so determined because I loved my mother so much. She was my entire world. And this monster had taken her from me. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop, or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. 
Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree 50 and use code degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Collier took the stand and the courtroom was silent. And he began by describing what he heard coming from his parents' bedroom on the night his mother Noreen was killed. I heard a thud. Okay, could you describe this sound for us? Okay, it was about this loud. And then about a minute and a half later, I heard, or I mean half a minute later, I heard um, a thud like this. It's even louder. And at that time, I was petrified. I mean, I was just scared. 
It's safe to say that everyone was stunned, mesmerized, and horrified while listening to this little boy's account. I told her, I said, Mom, please sit down. She says, why, Connor? I said, just please sit down. There's something I have to tell you. And she said, okay. I said, I think Daddy has a girlfriend. And then she said, well, Kalia, that's impossible. He can't have a girlfriend. And I and explained to her that, that Daddy had kissed her and hugged her and stuff like that. And I admitted to my mother that I did. And she said, that's okay. She said, I knew I was in an impossible position. While it's no doubt that Collier's testimony was the most anticipated, the public was also shocked and intrigued to hear that Dr. Boyle himself would be testifying in his own defense. His defense team was totally against the idea, but Boyle did not back down. In doing so, he set himself up to get torn apart pretty masterfully under cross-examination by the state's attorneys. On the stand, Boyle denied killing Noreen. He pivoted and testified that someone else must have murdered her. Someone else must have broken into his new home, tore out the basement carpeting, shelves, broke the cement floor, dug the grave, and buried Noreen, and then cemented over the hole, replaced the carpet, built shelving, and removed the debris. Someone else entirely must have done this. And he further testified that he never struck Noreen at all during their marriage. He said, I did not kill Noreen. I never harmed her at all. The prosecution poked one hole in his story after the next. And they didn't stop with just the murder. They outed Boyle as the masterful liar that he was, who had fabricated and manufactured many layers of his life, including claims that he was once a highly decorated U.S. Navy pilot. Boyle lied about who he was, his past. He lied to his wife about his girlfriends. He lied to his girlfriends about his other girlfriends. And all of this was revealed when he took the stand. And Collier never saw his father take the stand because after Collier's testimony, he was shielded from the rest of the trial. My escape like during all this is I got, I would go play tennis <laughs> at this like, tennis club. They had a TV there, but I was not allowed anywhere near that TV. So I would just be basically like hitting, I guess, almost of the time. But that's where I was. And, and they found me on a tennis court playing tennis with someone. And, and this was towards the end of the trial. This happened. So this was like in the last week. After almost a month of the courtroom drama unfolding in real time, closing statements were heard and the jury was sent out to deliberate. It only took about six hours for jurors to reach a verdict. I remember they came and got me and they said there's a verdict. Everybody's watching stuff on television. Then Collier received a phone call. It was Detective David Messmore on the line. He said, you know, your father was convicted. And I was relieved. (laughs) I was completely relieved. The moment Collier heard the news of the guilty verdict still haunts him. I had sacrificed so much and risked so much. But I wasn't going to let him get away with it. It was such a relief hearing that verdict that I knew, even though I could never get my mother back, that at least I had done the right thing. I don't normally cry, but I just it just hit me. It's like, that's, you know, I'm thinking about that moment of hearing that and then just the relief but also the fucking epic sadness of the fact that you just heard that your father is guilty of murdering your mother. At the same time that you're having this relief because you know that you threw all the marbles. You had nothing left to the tank. Like, either this is, you know, you've done the right thing or you've just fucked your life in a major way. And to realize that at 12 years old and not have anyone to talk to about it. 
Remember, Collier was 12 when he had to deal with the emotional confusion and chaos of this reality. And even though his dad was a lying, murderous, abusive sociopath who had destroyed Collier's life, he still felt bad about sending his father to prison. Clearly, Collier was an apple that fell very far from his father's tree. Because his father doesn't have a shred of the empathy Collier possessed, even as a little boy. On June 29, 1990, John Jack Boyle Jr. was convicted of aggravated murder, as well as the additional charge of abuse of a corpse. The judge handed down a sentence of life in prison with eligibility for parole after serving 20 years for the murder count and 18 months in prison for the abuse of a corpse count to be served consecutively. My father goes to prison uh, for murdering my mother. He gets 21 and a half years. 20 years for premeditated murder is defined as aggravated murder at that time in Ohio. And he gets 20 years for that, and he gets a year and a half for abuse of a corpse because of burying her. Unfortunately, the conviction of Dr. Boyle did not mean an immediate happy ending for Collier. The close of this case meant that authorities would need to find a more permanent living situation for the 12-year-old. Moving through the foster care system process was a painful, bumpy road. So I'm in the foster care system, and that's a nightmare. My foster care parents are not nice to me. They took me into custody because they wanted to adopt my sister, Elizabeth, which they did. So the first set of foster parents Collier was placed with ended up keeping Elizabeth and not Collier. Fucking brutal. The fact that we have a system this heartless renders us speechless. We're going to go on. I mean, seriously, after everything this little boy had already been through, he's then separated from his sister, the last family that he had left. But Collier begins to naturally gravitate towards a figure who had been his greatest ally since the day of his mother's murder. I start developing a relationship, a personal relationship with Dave Massmore, the detective from the case. After the trial is done, it was the first time in all of this that I would go over to their house and like hang out and ride bikes and hang out with their kids, like their older, you know, kids and you know, I had like a whole life and I had already had such a strong bond with Dave. And then I became bonded with his wife and I asked if they would adopt me. And so they put in to adopt me. Collier was thrilled with the prospect of being adopted by Detective Messmore and his wife. And even more thrilled that they felt the same way and wanted him to be their son. So that went through the court system. And I was really excited because I wanted to live with the Messmores. I wanted to start a new life and I wanted to feel loved and... It just felt like a real natural progression for me because I just wanted some return to normalcy. And just when there was a light at the end of the tunnel, darkness appeared again. What ended up happening is that the court did not award me to the Messmores. I did not go to them. I went to another family that I didn't know, really. They were in my school system, and and, um, I was adopted by them when I was 13. Years after this occurred, Detective Messmore gave an interview to the Richmond source and said the following. He said, the crime has had a profound effect on my wife and I. When we had Collier visiting after I had him removed from Dr. Boyle's care, we bonded with him and he had no one else to care for him. No aunts, no uncles or cousins. He asked us to apply for custody. And after discussing it, we did. The court investigated and recommended his placement with us. Everything went fine until juvenile court judge Paul Christ got Collier in front of him and said, 
You don't think I'm going to put you with the guy who locked up your dad? Collier broke down and cried and was removed from the court. So the Messmores were just as devastated to not be awarded custody. And it was just one more emotional blow for Collier. I mean, really, this kid could not catch a break. As Collier attempted to settle in with the next family he was placed with, he remained in the tiny town of Mansfield, and eyes continued to fixate on him. So it's like every step I would make was, you know, watched by everyone, no matter what I did. So that was kind of weird and unnerving growing up. But I did the best I could. You know, I had jobs in high school, and I, I delved really deeply into the arts, and I was like the school choir star. I was junior and senior class president, and I sort of grew up with this notoriety or with this fame which uh, in my small town, which was really de- derived from notoriety of this case and my father. And I wanted nothing to do with it in the fact that, like, I grew up saying to myself, I do not want to let this define me. Like, I don't want to be known as the Boyle kid who testified against his dad. I don't want to be known for this. I, I want to make my own life my own way. I want to get the fuck out of this place the first moment I can and be gone. But here's the thing. As the years ticked by, Collier couldn't fight the urge to have contact with his father. And I'm sure you can all agree that with everything that Collier had been through, all of this would be extremely conflicting and emotionally complicated. I was very determined from a young age to not let my mother die in vain. I want other people to learn from my experience that I had gone through. This is my whole life that I wanted this, and this was my motivating factor. I then realized, even though I was angry with my father, I realized that I need to have a relationship with him because he's my father. My father would write me letters. I would ignore them a lot. My adopted family would read the letters before they gave them to me. And they were very manipulative and whatnot. But I kept up a correspondence with my father over the years as much as I could. The letters turned into prison visits. I would see him in prison. He was at Lucasville prison. I was trying to develop a relationship with my father, even though I knew that it was very surface. I had this dream and my mother said, you know, you've got to reconcile with your father somehow for your own sake. I strongly felt like, look, there's not, I can't change the circumstances. My father is who he is. But for my own sanity, I have to sort of try to come to terms with this, whatever that is. And I sort of became obsessed on this mini journey of why did my father do what he did? Because it was premeditated. It wasn't, if it was a crime of passion, like they got into a fight, he grabbed a gun, he shot her. I get those murders. Most people would never snap an emotional situation. They would never go and kill somebody, but I think they would understand it. It can happen in a split second. But that's not what Dr. Boyle did. And it's the evil implications of this premeditation that Collier struggled to reconcile. To buy a house, to have a relationship with a woman, to then talk about leveling. Like, it was planned for months and months and months that he was going to murder my mother. So that, to me, is just like, where does that come from? And I, I don't understand it. But I've become sort of fascinated with it. So I have a relationship with my father over the years. Because I'm like, I still have to do something with this story. I want to I, I have this access to my father. I don't know anything about my family whatsoever. I'm trying to hold on. And I want answers. 
As years continued to pass, Collier excelled in high school before deciding that he wanted to move to California. When I was in foster care, there was abuse in foster care. And I would just sit very isolated and alone. And I kept thinking, like, what would it be like to come out to California? And I remember, like, hearing about, like, Venice and the beach and sunsets and surfing. And I thought, that's where I want to be, which is where I am now. Collier did move to Los Angeles, and he pursued a career in cinematography and filmmaking. And this move did bring him one step closer to finding meaning in and reconciling the suffering he'd experienced as a child, at least to some degree. I was determined at all costs to not be the Boyle kid. And I wanted nothing to do with it because that, I literally did not want to let the tragedy define me as who I was or also mar my life with like, oh, I'm a victim. Oh, I'm this because my mother would not have wanted that. My mother was a strong woman. And even though my mother's heart would have broken for what I was going through as a kid, as a child, she would have wanted me to be strong. Once Collier got to L.A., he really thrived in the space away from Mansfield, that little town where the world, as he knew it, imploded. Collier's spotty contact with his father continued. But then in 2010, 20 years after Jack Boyle's conviction, their relationship seemed to hit a milestone of sorts. It wasn't really until 2010 when he was up for parole the first time. I had taken a job back in Ohio, and I was just starting off as like a DP and camera guy. And I took his job because he was up for parole, and I wanted to talk to him. I asked him if he murdered my mother, and he said, I'm responsible for her death, is what he said, which was not the answer I was looking for. I was looking for an admission of guilt so I could move on with my life. What Collier was looking for was for his father to look him in the eye and admit the truth, that he had planned it. As awful as the truth is, Collier wanted it. But Jack Boyle, the sociopath that he was, he refused. Instead, Boyle pivoted and he changed his story. So now he was claiming that Noreen died because she was pushed and hit her head accidentally. And I'm sure Boyle thought that this was cleverly concocted, but honestly, nobody was buying it. Especially not the parole board, who Boyle appeared in front of for the first time in 2010, which Collier just mentioned. He was ultimately denied parole, and here's a direct quote from the decision from the board. It says, quote, Boyle denied for years that he killed his wife and now only takes responsibility for her death by pushing her, causing her to hit her head, not with prior calculation and design. He claimed that he left the room, and when he returned, he performed CPR on his wife for 15 to 30 minutes without summoning for medical help. Release at this time would not further the interest of justice and would demean the seriousness of the brutal crime. I said, I know you murdered my mother. Why did you do it? He just wouldn't explain it to me. He just refused. You're crazy, whatever. It's a manipulation, sociopathic, narcissistic, gaslighting technique. So he did that to me. So I sort of become obsessed with this as I'm growing up and I moved to Hollywood and I was, I've got to figure out a way to do something with this story. Collier relentlessly pursued the truth and simultaneously committed himself to his career as a cinematographer, which aligned him with some pretty prominent filmmakers in Hollywood. His story captivated everyone who heard it, and soon, an Academy Award-winning director and filmmaker named Barbara Koppel took notice too. And before Collier knew it, in 2017, he was in the middle of production on a documentary about what he'd been through, which would be titled A Murder in Mansfield. In the documentary, Collier wanted to explore the collateral damage that resulted from his mother's murder. 
Producing this film would not only require Collier to go back to Mansfield and have intimate meetings with people like Detective Messmore and visit the home he lived and where his mother was killed, but this film would ultimately culminate in a meeting with his father in jail or on camera who would confront him about his lies once and for all. For Collier, confronting his father had become about so much more than getting the truth. Because Collier knew the truth. The documentary allowed Collier to confront some of the most painful aspects of his past. He wanted to overcome the odds and not let the horrible events of his childhood define his life. You grow up in the shadow of something that is so horrific, in the shadow of someone who has committed such a heinous crime, right? This is my father who murdered my mother. And a lot of times when kids are picking on you at the playground or you're in relationships with people answering questions, it always comes up as, oh, your daddy's a murderer. Oh, you're probably a psycho like your dad. You grow up in this shadow. I was determined to not live that way at all. But I had to get to the bottom of it. Like what separates me from my father? In a scene between Collier and his father in A Murder in Mansfield, Collier sits across from his dad, who is now in his 70s and dressed in tan prison garb. The conversation is emotional, and a lot of words are exchanged about the impact of Noreen's murder on Collier. And while Boyle claims to regret causing harm to Collier, he stops short at coming clean about the premeditation and the true extent of the planning that went into Noreen's killing. Yeah, and in the scene, Boyle actually introduces a new version of events into the fold, and he tells Collier that his intentions were not to kill Noreen, and the whole thing began because she instigated an argument with him. She became so enraged that she grabbed a knife and attacked him. So in self-defense, he pushed her. Then she hit her head on a wooden table, which is how she died. So obviously... We've seen all, and heard all the evidence about the premeditation, and this guy thinks he's smarter than everyone, and he's so committed to this lie that clearly he can't confess now. So in the scene, after Collier hears these lies, he lowers his head in sadness and probably in disgust too, in disappointment. It's like, dude, let it go. Come clean. Like, the parole board's not letting you out. What do you have to lose? You could gain a shred of respect, and he's refusing to do it. I realize at that moment that I am not my father, and... I thought that like any normal person with empathy, when you have somebody who com does something that is so horrible to people, murdering my mother and uh, not and being so unaware of the consequences of your actions, that something must have happened to you so traumatic that you led you to do these actions, right? Turns out wrong. I walked out of that room so shaken that day because I realized one simple truth in life. No matter what, some people are just born fucking evil. And that's my father. And I will never be able to comprehend that. And I'm glad. <laughs> it's like a burning fucking desire. You're just like, and you constantly think about it. You're just like, and so when I finally saw my father and I finally was sitting there, I was like, I am nothing like this fucking man. Like, I've been dealing, living with this for 26, 27 years at this point, worried about this. And I realized, like, for the first time, I'm not this person. Like, this is not me. This is not defining me. This whole thing, as awful, trying, and traumatizing as it was for Collier, did not define him. Collier now goes by Collier Landry, which is his middle name. His experience and his commitment to healing himself and others by exploring the aspect of collateral damage left in the wake of violence has led him to do some truly incredible things. 
He gave a TED Talk on his experience titled, What Happens When the Answers We Seek Are Not What We Find. He hosts a podcast called Moving Past Murder. He's become a best-selling author, and as we've mentioned, produced an incredible documentary about his experience that you can watch on Hulu, Discovery ID, Discovery Plus. It's stories like Collier's that inspired us to create this podcast in the first place, and is proof that there really is healing and understanding someone else's perspective. Because as painful and as heartbreaking as someone else's reality may be, we can all draw inspiration from Collier's tenacity and resilience. All right. Well, a huge thank you to Collier for being our first degree for the past three episodes. If you're out there and you have a story to tell, you can email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Billy Jensen at Alexis Linkletter at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook page. We're talking true crime all the time and stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But not, but not that, that close. close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring and creating original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, producing an additional writing by Taylor Rogers and Alan Santiago for Podcast One. Sources for this episode are The Mansfield Journal, The Richmond Source, Murder in Mansfield, Forensic Files, GoEerie.com, The Erie Daily Times, Collier's TED Talk. And as always, our First Degree guest is always our largest source. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.